0: This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial.
1: It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful.
0: Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that
2: we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, I'm Nina Kopel. Welcome to the show. Today we look at errors in medication... With 50% of mistakes preventable, how can we stop them from happening? And it's seen as quite a soft science, but we believe that the potential is there for it to be a bit revolutionary. We look at new technology that could change the way nurses interact with patients. But first, we look at women's health in conflict zones. In conflict-stricken countries, emergency teams' first response often relates to food, shelter and medical supplies. But in the effort to provide emergency aid, women and children can be left out. Pregnant women are particularly vulnerable, and finding safe delivery spaces can be hard. But there is also a real health concern relating to sexual violence for people during conflicts. Cara Blackburn is a women's health advisor and midwife with Médecins Sans Frontières. I asked her whether sexual violence increased in times of conflict or if conflict is just exacerbating an existing problem.
0: Unfortunately, we see in a crisis situation, whether that be a natural disaster or an acute conflict, we see increases in the cases of sexual violence. I guess it's related to people being displaced from their homes, living in unfamiliar environments in large groups altogether.
2: Is there any political conflict that comes into play when you're talking about providing things like safe abortions to people in in other countries? Yeah, it's a very
0: sensitive and difficult issue in a lot of places to, to implement and even to talk about. I guess I always try and remember that abortion is only completely illegal in six countries in the world. And in fact, as MSF, we're not working in any of those countries. So what that means is that there is generally the legal ability to provide safe abortion care in most circumstances. Now, that does not mean that it's easily accepted in the community because that may be actually where the majority of your barriers are in that people perceive it as illegal they perceive it as the wrong thing to do because of religious or cultural beliefs Um, and so it's very much about understanding the context that you work in but really because we know the complications of unsafe abortion contribute so highly to maternal mortality rates around the world we feel we have an obligation as an organisation to respond to a request for a safe abortion by either having the means to do it ourselves or to referring it to another provider but that's certainly part of our policy in terms of sexual violence care but also as a policy in general for the provision of safe termination of pregnancy.
2: How do you go about having those discussions with women who are in communities that where it can be perceived as such a negative thing to have happen?
0: Yes, it takes time. So an example I can give is we've been in the north of Yemen. It's been a country that's unfortunately undergone many, many years of conflict, different conflict in different stages. The last 12 months or 12 to 18 months has been a very tumultuous time there. So we've had an emergency obstetric hospital in the north of Yemen for many years When we opened that project, sexual violence, termination of pregnancy was an area that we couldn't discuss at all. But because the community is now and the staff have a lot more confidence that we are going to be there and going to stay there, they have confidence in the care that we've been providing... They've become much more open to talk about these issues. So again, it's about building trust in a community, providing good quality of care. And, and you will find that once the community and the elders of the community and the leaders of the community understand what you're there for, these cases will come to you and we've found that in the north of Yemen, actually, which is an extremely conservative society even, where I didn't believe at first we would be even be able to look at any of these issues. But slowly, slowly, we've been able to talk about some of the cases that are presenting, give women's options about what they would like to do. Again, it's about building confidence in the community and, and having a, a good and safe service available.
2: What about the way that laws apply to rape and informing government or local law enforcement about rape that has occurred? How do you navigate that very fragile situation where you might have people coming to you with a problem that you were then legally obligated to report?
0: Yes, yeah, so this is again a very important issue. So we primarily are, a me- well, we are a medical organisation, so we provide a medical response to the woman, but we also work very closely. We have a legal department as part of our organisation that has been responsible for looking very specifically at the laws that exist in a country and how they can apply. So, for instance, in Papua New Guinea, where they have fairly restrictive abortion laws. We worked very closely with the judicial system and with the police system in that context to create what was a very positive working environment. So we provided the medical evidence and certificate for a victim of sexual violence and worked very hard on advocacy in terms of Taking, you know, supporting the woman if she wished to go to the police about this case and supporting her through the judicial system. So it's very much about establishing relationships. We employ lawyers in country to help us understand the criminal code and how that applies and then also to establish relationships with the police and with the judiciary to help if a woman wants to pursue a case through the courts that this is available for her.
2: I know we've mentioned a few countries already in, in this broader discussion discussion about what's going on and the challenges facing dealing with people who've experienced sexual violence. But do you have another example that might highlight for people just how complicated the situation can be or a country where this is really playing out right now?
0: So I can give an example about how difficult it is providing this care when we can talk about a country like Afghanistan, where there is just so many cultural issues around the position of women in society and what an event of sexual violence might mean. We're running a large obstetric program in in Kabul, in the capital of Afghanistan, and we're looking at the moment about how we can implement care for victims of sexual violence and starting to look at even if there is the possibility of discussing safe termination of pregnancy. So this is proving extremely challenging because of where sexual violence sits within, within this culture related to the position of women in society. So slowly, slowly through our investigations, we've found that there is some grassroots organisations already in place, and our plan is to start more of a dialogue with them. But we've been in the project for over a year now and these discussions are only just starting. So, yeah, in a place that's that has a lot of... It's very difficult to talk about some of these issues related to women. It's just about going really slowly, finding the organisations that may already exist or supportive practitioners in the community that you can talk with to see if there is a way of starting the conversation and perhaps starting services so that women can access them. But it is
2: certainly not easy. Is that generally what the response is? It's finding the people who are already doing this work on the ground and just supporting them to do that job better?
0: I mean, that's absolutely part of it. Because we know that even though, even if abortion laws, for instance, are extremely restrictive, that women will seek an abortion if they desire it. And that is is not something that happens in settings of conflict only. That happens throughout the world. So this is always the issue that just because you, you might not see in your hospital requests... We know that worldwide that women will be seeking termination of pregnancy if they desire it for whatever their reasons. We don't ever ask the reason. They will seek it. And if there is not a safe way for them to access care, they will seek unsafe abortion. And that's what we see in our hospitals. We see the complications of unsafe abortion, terrible situations where there has been young girls, 14-year-old girls, having to have their uterus removed because of the damage that has, has been
2: done by a backyard practitioner. Are there any countries where you've gone in and you've really had to start from scratch where there hasn't been any ground, um, ground root support already happening? Or I do you always kind of find there's at least some small-scale organisations functioning on some level?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I guess... There seems to be now, you will always find some some small groups, some small grassroots groups doing something, but I guess it depends in where, where the conflict or the, the issue is occurring. Um, you know, in rural South, well, South Sudan is very rural, but, you know, in the really remote places of South Sudan, for instance, where we're seeing a lot of refugee movements because of the, well, the most recent crisis, which is causing the South Sudanese refugees to move around a lot in those countries, bordering, but also within within south sudan itself so they're often moving to extremely remote places where we're having trouble accessing them but also that they are having trouble accessing any kind of health health care so in fact when we've set up health clinics in those situations that there is absolutely nothing around so in 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 essence we are starting from scratch actually and so that really means that we're looking at, as a medical organisation, what we can actually provide as emergency support before, you know, before the situation stabilises and perhaps they can find then the other processes, the legal processes that may be in place um, when they've moved back to their
2: to their original villages and things like that. Mm. We've touched on it already, especially in terms of how communities and people and positions of authority, be it police or government, respond to or don't respond to sexual violence, but is it ever really hard to have these conversations with women who might not know what their rights are, or who have a completely different cultural perception of what's going on around them? Yeah, absolutely.
0: So our responsibility is to is to primarily provide the medical care, so protection for the woman physically after the incident, but then also part of our services is to refer her to our own mental health counsellors, social workers, all the like that can counsel her about what her options are, because you're absolutely right, they might not have even an idea about what legal avenues that they can pursue, or even if they want to. So our responsibility is to provide a medical certificate that clearly documents their story and any injuries that has been sustained, bearing in mind that often there are not visible injuries as a result of a rape, but it's very important to document the woman's story, and that is written in a legal document called a medical certificate. And we give that to a woman, and then she can make the decision after she's had counselling about how she wishes to pursue, or not, what's happened to her through through a legal process.
2: Cara Blackburn, women's health advisor and midwife with Medicines on Frontier. Practising healthcare can be stressful, and when GPs, pharmacies and hospitals all have to work together, mistakes can and do happen. But when it comes to receiving the right medication, up to 50% of errors are actually preventable. Dr. Sam Lapkin from the UTS Faculty of Health has devoted his PhD to looking at these medication mistakes. He joined producer Sam King to talk us through what he's found.
3: The most surprising thing was the fact that, you know, the magnitude of the problem, you know, the number of errors and the fact that they are potentially preventable. So we know that, you know, up to 50% of the errors that we know about can be prevented by you know by some uh, already existing interventions 50% yeah that's insane yes
4: can you give us some examples of the main errors that happen
3: um, omission errors patients not getting their medications on time that's that's a big one you know the most severe ones are, are a patient receiving the wrong type of medication so the wrong in terms of you know the dose mm. or the actually a totally wrong medication mm. is that more common than not getting them at all uh, not getting them at all is the most common mm. errors, so not getting them within the expected timeframes or actually not uh, getting them at all. Is this an Australia problem or a New South Wales problem? It's, it's worldwide. Mm. So the data that we have in New South Wales is similar to what's reported elsewhere in the literature, like you know, in North America or in Europe. So those statistics are not only confined to Australia, this is a worldwide problem. They're saying 50% as well? 50%. Yes. Wow. So 50%, that's a United Nations WHO statistics mm-hmm. that up to 50% of medications are not used you know appropriately. What kind of impact could a, a serious error have on a patient? Uh, a patient can potentially die. You know, people can actually die if they get the wrong type of medication. Yeah. So that's the worst uh, case uh, scenario. But some of them you know are preventable. You know, you know uh, issues that can be reversed by other medications. So you know that can lead to an extended stay in hospital, which is actually a a significant cost on the health system. As you probably know, health is the top. Of agenda here in Australia and you know the costs and the the amounts that we are investing in in, in medicine and health are not sustainable going forward
4: mm. so as I understand it you notice that reviews of, of strategies looking to improve this situation had a sort of tendency to contradict each other why, why do you think that is
3: yeah th- there is I think it's because we've got weak, weak evidence that's one thing that actually came up. You know, the evidence is is, uh, is is weak in the instance that, you know, we depend on self-reported incidences. And we know recent work that was actually done in Australia indicated that less than 2% of medication errors are reported. So one of the recommendations, one of the findings of the work that we did is in fact that we need to improve the way we report and capture mm. these medication instances.
4: How would you suggest doing that? Uh,
3: so ensuring that it's a no-blame culture, uh, ensuring that we improve on how we... we even uh, report uh, near incidences, so or near misses, uh, because we know that up to forty-eight percent of medication errors are actually prevented at the moment of administration by nurses. So nurses are best placed to play a significant role in this in this area.
4: Just on that near misses, is there a culture of nurses almost getting it wrong and then kind of covering it up?
3: Is that, yes, it's it's yeah. not really around nurses because, you know, medication a process itself is a multidisciplinary, it's a complex a process that involves, you know, prescribing, dispensing mm-hmm. and the last part is when nurses actually give uh, the medication. So errors can occur in any phase or in any stage within that process. So the main point being that at the point of giving the patient the medication, that is where nurses can actually play a significant role mm. in avoiding and preventing some of those errors.
4: Did you hit any major setbacks when conducting your uh, your synthesis?
3: We, we did. Uh, the first one is that we couldn't find, you know, any we, we identified very few Australian studies that have been done in this area so it's an opportunity actually for Australia for us to really focus and do some work There's some work already that's being done some innovative work, mainly around you know, um, observing nurses and clinicians in this area. And we're actually moving towards, you know, uh, observation studies as the gold standards, as mm. opposed to people, you know, self-reporting these medications, because we know that there's a significant under-reporting. Sure. How would an observation factors. system work? Uh, so some work that has been done overseas is you actually observe, if you've got a person who stands at a distance, a, a trained clinician, who observes what is actually the interactions that are okay within this process. Okay. So we also know that, you know, interruptions, and and um, distractions during this process have been identified as one of the major causes. As you know, the clinical environment is very busy. There are you know things that are always happening. You've got to give medications. You've got to attend to other care needs, and you've got to communicate and deal with other members of the healthcare team. Mm-hmm. So so the very nature of of the clinical environment is, is very, I've got interruptions.
4: You talked a little bit before about the uh, collaborative nature of, of your research. Can you talk a bit about that?
3: Yes, actually, this work is an extension of the work that I did for my PhD, okay. and I'm very passionate about this area. I can tell. About you know, patient safety, about medication safety. Mm. So, the, this publication or this article that we're talking about that was recently published in the Journal of Medicine Management is a collaboration of three universities uh, myself at the University of Technology, there's uh, Professor Levitt Johns at the University of Newcastle. I've got Professor Lynn Chenoweth from UNSW and Professor Marie Johnson from ACU. So it's three institutions that are coming together to try and, you know, and solve this significant healthcare issue. Why are you so passionate about it? Is there a personal story here? The well, I started in my PhD and as a clinician I discovered that most of these errors are actually preventable. Sure. You know, the focus has been on the technical issues, on the technical, you know, skills like calculations and pharmacology knowledge. But what my PhD discovered was that, you know, some of these key non-technical skills are actually crucial. This involves, you know, good communication, open disclosure a, when an error occurs, and working as a team. So, I think we need to t- turn our focus a little bit from the emphasis on the technical skills to try and, you know, understand some of the non-technical skills that are involved in medication process.
4: Mm. I'm going out in a bit of a limb here, but are there certain conditions or areas that have a higher rate of, of, of errors than others?
3: Yes, there, there, there is. I mean. To begin with, you know, last year, data that we have from last year is that 200 million prescriptions were dispensed in australia alone you know so So that's about 10 prescriptions per person in australia you're kidding so yeah so medication administration or taking medications is the most common you know medical intervention Mm. so errors are bound to happen so we are saying yeah let's try and minimize those errors that we can sort of you know avoid so we are looking at 10 prescriptions per person that's a significant number so polypharmacy is actually one of the significant issues as well where one person gets a number of of medications Mm. so the higher the number of medications someone takes the higher the risk of medication errors and you have talked about observation at a prescription level
4: what about at pharmacies? Is there anything that can be improved there?
3: Yes they are um, what's being done and it's also been done here especially here in, in New South Wales the use of technology so some technological interventions uh, have been done but what you're finding out with from countries that have already done this like in North America is that we still have errors even after introducing you know technology okay. and some of these technological advancements are quite you know expensive we're talking about billions of dollars of investment in infrastructure of trying to solve this problem so so, so yes they there are some some issues that can you know that can be easily be eradicated or um you know managed by the use of technology for example um poor handwriting on on on, on prescriptions if you use computers you know yeah. uh, to write those we can easily eliminate some of those those issues. Yeah, but the problem still remains at the point of administration, especially mm. in an acute care setting. Sure. You know, you might have the correct drug ar- 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 along the process but what happens at the moment of administration mm. is actually a key step and a, a key area of my uh, research interest. There really, there is no any safeguard. Mm. An error that occurs at the moment the patient receives the medications are likely to read the patient. Mm. You're talking about handwriting and it's incredible. Some doctors just have
4: like the most sc- scrawly kind of handwriting, don't they? Yeah. It
3: is and it I has actually come, come down. It has actually been a identified in in, in a number of reports as a contributing factor to medication errors so you know and another risk factor is you know medications with similar names there are some strategies that have been done targeting those those areas okay are
4: you optimistic about the future i guess
3: i am i am optimistic you know there is way and you know especially myself as a clinician and educator as well there is a role for us to play and ensure that when we train these, uh, these uh, future health professionals in universities, mm. we can make them better health professionals by equipping them with the necessary skills that they can use to try and change the culture within, you know, within the health services and within the clinical area.
2: Dr Sam Lapkin, researcher and lecturer at UTS, talking with producer Sam King. Now, you might remember from previous weeks, we've been looking at research developing positive key performance indicators for nurses. The idea was that by gauging responses from hospitals around the world, nurses would have a benchmark to compare themselves to. Val Wilson is the Director of Nursing Research and Practice Development at Sydney Children's Hospital Network and a Professor of Nursing Research and Practice Development at the University of Technology, Sydney. She was one of the researchers working on the project, and now the team has gone a step further. Well, my colleague, um, Professor Tanya McCanns, in the University
1: of Ulster and myself have been working on this project where we've been testing out measures of um, nursing and midwifery practice that are based on the perspectives of patients and their families. Tanya and I and our research assistant, Nicole, kind of worked together to come up with this idea of um, developing an app um, for iPad, basically, that is a one-stop shop to not only collect the data more readily from patients and families, but it actually analyzes the data and then once you reach your numbers, gives you a report. And so we think that nursing staff will really like the ability for them to be in control of doing that, Um, but it's easy to do and can be done relatively quickly.
2: So is that something that we're going to see rolling out now across all of these places you've been working? So certainly
1: the, the aim of the app is that we're going to be testing it. We're actually going to be testing it in two new centres rather than the rather than in the centres that we've already been working with and we're going to be testing it across mainly across adult services because our project was in pediatrics and we know that it's not pediatric specific. So we're going to be testing it across the adult um sectors. However, the paediatric centres that have been with us for the last two, three years, if they're continuing to use the um, uh, KPIs, we're certainly going to be offering them, you know, the app so that they can do that in a um, perhaps reduced time frame from what they've been currently using. Do you see this kind of having a a mass use in the future? I think so. I mean, our plan is that we check out the app and te- test it if you like and make sure that it's as good as it can be before um, putting it in open access. The idea is that we could have any um, organisation across the world wanting to use the app and they can select to be benchmarked against other organisations that are already using the app. So the idea is that we spread it as wide as we can.
2: Why hasn't anyone done this before? I don't know.
1: We've been so focused on measuring other things that I just think it's always been the case in nursing that we haven't really um, been clear about what we should be measuring that says something about nursing practice. So when Tanya was looking at these, um, developing these KPIs, she wanted something that really spoke about the contribution of nurses and midwives. The kinds of things that we currently measure are usually things where care hasn't gone so well so we measure things like um, falls or medication incidents and they're indicators of when things haven't gone so well and they're not specific to nursing or midwives they are kind of could be any cause so we were keen to kind of look at well what is it that nurses do and how do they add value to the care experience of patients and families
2: have you met any resistance or are people just generally positive about jumping on board
1: Yeah, it's kind of interesting because we have 20 clinical units in this um, paediatric study and we haven't had any dropout. Once people have signed up and we have a kind of um, strict um, guidelines in terms of they've got to have executive support, they've got to have support outside the clinical area to help them do it and then they've got to have internal buy-in. And once we got that up and running and, and staff could see the information they were getting back, There was a real sense of positivity about it and we certainly haven't had any dropout. And we've expanded from those original 20 units and we now have a number of other centres. And they're the same. There is a positivity about nurses and midwives getting information back about their practice in a timely manner that gives them something
2: that they can work on then. And that that positive reinforcement is always such a great learning tool but from the perspective of the patients what do you what do envision them getting back from this experience?
1: Yeah well if you can imagine in those 20 centres we've we've had over 60 changes in practice already based on the feedback that staff have got. Oh well like what things have changed? So um, things like um, just a a kind of concrete example is um, um, providing better information for parents and children when they're admitted to the clinical unit. In some of our centres we have parents who come from long distances and they suddenly find themselves in a ward, they're not sure of anything around about them and so just simple information like where to get a cup of tea, where the local bank is, um, things like that. Um, We're finding that staff were assuming that families knew all of this kind of information So just preparing information booklets, so that was one kind of simple example, or discharge information that's easy for um, patients and families to understand.
2: Does this really come down to the fact that we haven't been appreciating our nurses enough and telling them that they're doing a good job and so they do get lost in the busy day-to-day life? I certainly think that's part of it,
1: that you you kind of just get busy doing uh, and you don't stop and pause and think about that. And I'm not saying that people haven't been telling nurses that they're appreciated. Of course they have, but that's been fairly non-specific. It's not given them information about what they could do to improve. It's basically been, yeah, great, thanks, or actually, no, there's a problem here. And what we haven't been able to do is isolate what are the things that are really working well and what might we be doing differently. And I think this kind of data gives them that information but the positivity of it also you know yourself if someone tells you something really positive about how you're doing at work or how you are um, in your personal life you get that sense of feeling really good about yourself and when you feel really good about yourself and what you're doing you're more likely to do more of it and that's what we think you know the more you get feedback you know we have nurses saying like oh I didn't realize." that parents felt that way, that, you know, we were doing such a good job. The more that you get that, the more positivity it can spread. And I think that's what we believe the potential of this is. I think the the fact that we've started to get some real um, grant funds for this research is really indicating to us the potential that um, establishments feel in, in the data that we're collecting and so um, I certainly managed to get money to build the app which is, it's simple in our heads how to do it but of course it's much more complex than that (laughs) and then my colleague Tanya in Northern Ireland um, has worked hard to get a grant for us to test that out and we believe we're at the stage in the platform that we can probably, once we get this information we can fly and that we will get the support from the establishment to do this kind of work, which is not easy because it's seen as quite a soft science, but we believe that the potential is there for it to be a bit revolutionary.
2: Val Wilson, Professor of Nursing Research and Practice Development at the University of Technology, Sydney. Don't forget, if you want to hear more from us here at Think Health, you can find us online at 2 forward slash Think We're also available on demand. Just search for Think Health in your favourite podcast app. And remember, I'm not a doctor, so if this show has raised questions for you, head to a GP. This show is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology, Sydney. I'm Nina Kopel. See you next week for more health research and news.